Hi, this is Sean Benson from Harvest Church in Warrensburg, Missouri. I want to thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. For more resources, log on to harvestwarrensburg.com. Well, this may well be our the, the last in a, in a message specifically geared towards the discipline of Father God. We're going to p- probably dance around in that for a little while longer. How many of you know there's like a lot to talk about when, comes to the, when it comes to the Father heart of God? I, I, I may even, it's a bit on my mind, even to delve into church discipline. Does that sound awesome? Yeah, let's, do, let's just let's get right into the middle of that stuff. It seems like a good season for that. But how does, you know, how does church discipline coincide with what we've discovered about the Father heart? You know, I, I can tell you this, that they're, they're not in contrast to one another. What we have been excavating in terms of the Father's heart and, and punishment versus discipline is absolutely 100% consistent with what God would call the local church or how he would call the local church to execute his discipline. We all right? So it seemed like maybe we get into that. I don't know. We'll just see. I'll get Pastor Todd to start preaching on that business. He knows. He's an expert in all things. <laughs> it's pretty true, actually. He's a pretty solid dude. Any discussion on discipline, though, has to include conversations about Hebrew 12. Any Bible scholars out there going, I wonder when he's going to preach on Hebrews 12. Well, this is, this is your day. You saw it coming. Uh, any conversation has to revolve around Hebrews chapter 12 because it is the foremost chapter, the foremost set of verses in regard to the Father's discipline. And it also happens to be the set of scriptures that people often misinterpret when they begin to believe that God is, in fact, a punisher of his children. So that's what we want to get into just a little bit today. Before we do that, I want to remind you of what Webster's 1828 Dictionary says in regard to defining punishment versus discipline. A a reminder, the reason that I use the old one is because the new generations of Webster's Dictionary get tainted by culture. They begin to actually redefine words based on what the culture believes at the time, you know, and so to get some real definitions, you got to dig just a little bit to the oldies. You know, so I use the 1828 version. Webster originally invented the dictionary to help us understand the Bible and the words that were written there. So that's why we go to that version. You can kind of see that on the board. Uh, punishment, any pain or suffering inflicted on a person for a crime or offense versus discipline, education, instruction, cultivation, and improvement. Of course, there's a couple of other things there, but you begin to get the idea. Punishment inflicts pain on you for a crime that you have done. For your crimes, your, you, there's a punishment. It inflicts pain on you. Discipline, rather, comes alongside of you to educate, to encourage, to admonish, and to ultimately improve. What I want to do today is I want to start right with verse 1, Hebrews 12. And we just want to go verse by verse through verse 6. So the first couple of verses don't necessarily have to do with discipline per se, but they do set us up. You know, And so I want to jump right in. Verse 1, are we ready? Wow, dude, seriously. We're ready. Father in heaven. I ask that you loose their tongues and their minds and their joy. Yes, Lord. I do not pray for my own faith, but for all of those who would hear, Father. Thank you for answering that in advance. See, he was already answering it while I was praying. You all were like, see, you were already getting it. So, see, that's, that's how it works. That's how faith works right there. Verse 1. Therefore, 
Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, Paul, uh, about a month ago in communion, tapped into this just a little bit. But what the author of, of Hebrews, by the way, some people think it was a woman that wrote Hebrews. <laughs> Junia. Did you know that, Pastor Todd? Oh, I guess she didn't know everything after all. <laughs> they, they suspect it's possible. They left it anonymous because it, it wasn't uh, appropriate in the culture for a woman to, you know, to, to do that. And so those things were beginning to change, and the culture hadn't caught up quite yet. It's a theory. I like it a lot, though. So we're going to go with it. <laughs> the author of Hebrews, they're, they're, they're leaning into the analogy of, of a race, of, of a runner, of a sprinter. I mean, did anybody in here ever run track in high school? So like three of you sickos. There's something wrong with you people. You're actually, you're actually broken. Like, you just, you're sadist. You like pain is what it is. Now, I have to admit, I was also a track star in high school. I think you could probably see from my physique, my physique here that I was quite good at it. See, I, what, I, what I was good at was I could run three steps faster than any of those long leg giants could do. Like, what I'm trying to say is one of theirs equaled three of mine, which basically meant I had 100 yards in me and I was spent. What are you going to do with legs like this? I was cursed. I couldn't be a track star. <laughs> Pray for me. I'd take two inches right now, but he's just never done that. You know, so I, I ran a little bit of track, you know, and, 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 I, and I, I run every week now. It's part of my exercise routine. And, and when I'm running, maybe you'll be able to identify this in, in some other scenario in your life. You know, there's a point when I'm running around that track and dying to self where I think to myself, oh, just one more lap. And I'm not literally every time I go, at some point I'm going, okay, it's just two more. It's just two more. Okay, it's just one more. I can do this. So, so what, what am I doing in those moments? One, I'm buffeting my body and it's horrible. And it's, pay, it's like, I just don't understand. Jesus, I'll just take freedom from all fat and sickness. Amen. Supernaturally released to me without actually having to do it. I also like chips and ice cream. If you could work that out, that'd be great. No, but here I am running around, and, but, but I'm laying something before me as an incentive that allows me to, to, to muster the strength that I need to actually finish the goal that I have in front of me. Because everything's crying out and saying, mm, this is not a great idea. This wasn't really good when you started. If you're an athlete, like sometimes athletes, you know, what, what they set before them is, is winning the prize. The, the, the Bible talks about the, 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 the Olympic athletes. The athletes, they have a perishable prize. You know, they buff their bodies. They, they do all of these things, but they're doing it for a prize. And so if you're particularly athletic and you're competitive, there might be a place in you that has this in, that's incentivized by competition. Like, I'm going to win this race, and if I'm going to win this race, then I've got to go the extra mile. I've actually got to do that due diligence. But there's something that's being set before you as a goal that allows you to endure the difficulties on the front end. Are you with me? Okay. So what it's actually beginning to present by analogy is that Jesus is actually the prize. This is in contrast to the earthly, the wreath that we get, the gold medal, the silver medal, the bronze, whatever it is that we're going for, the accolades from man. In contrast to that, it's saying for those of you in the Christian faith, that Jesus is actually the prize that is set before us. And we see this in two facets. In one, in one sense, he's saying, listen, it is worth it. 
It's worth it. Remember, I'm running around the track up however many times. For me, it's like once, and then I'm about ready to be done. But somewhere in there, I'm saying, it's worth it. What is set before me is worth enduring the pain and suffering that I'm doing right now. The physical health that I'm going to get on the other side of this. The slender physique that I've yet to attain. You know, it's worth it. It's worth the punishment. I'm saying now, Jesus is worth the sacrifice in your life. Jesus is the prize. He's the one set before you. It's, it's worth buffeting your body, if you will. It's worth buffeting the old man of sin. It's worth going after it. He is worth it. And the second part is this. He is actually the prize. So not only is it worth it, like, like there's the life in abundance comes when I embrace life in abundance at the expense of my old man and the sin which so easily entangles me. It's worth it. He's worth it. But he being the prize, the other thing that we get in reconciliation is this. It's intimacy with Jesus. You know, did you know that, speaking in the natural again, you know that you can get to the point where you're literally starving, and at some point, you don't even know that you're hungry anymore? Like, right now, every one of you, it's 12.08. By the way, we went a little longer. It's going to be, you know, 3 o'clock. Just saying. Just want to warn you so you have your expectations set right. You know, some of you in here, probably your stomachs are beginning to rumble, right? The reason they're rumbling is because you have a regular diet of food that you're ingesting. But when you starve yourself, you get to a point where your body actually cuts that feeling off. I, I, wonder, I wonder how many of us, we, we, we think about well, you know, intimacy with Jesus as the prize. Like for maybe for guys that feels a little weird, I, you know, I, don't, like it's, I just were disconnected from a little bit. But I wonder how many of us are disconnected from the concept because we are literally starving in the spirit. We've gotten to the place where we don't even know that intimacy with Christ is what we really need. Like, I, I don't even feel the sensation anymore. I'm, I'm literally starving in the spirit, but I'm telling you, Jesus and intimacy with him, it is the prize. We sing about it. He is the prize. We sing about it all the time. Oh, all I want, all I want is you, Jesus. We sing about it. But are we, like, are we living it? Is he really the main thing? Ah, man, I fear so many of us are starving. Sometimes you just need to take a little nibble to reignite your system so that you realize, holy smokes, food was what I needed all along. Jesus and intimacy with him was what I needed all along. You know, Jesus has created us. He has designed us to know and be known. Our primary satisfaction in our God-given makeup, our God-given design, is to know and be known in Him. In Him. In fact, this is the promise of the new covenant. Right? So that's what's being relayed here as we begin this chapter in Hebrews. Verse 2. Did I already read 2? Man, oh man. I am getting way ahead of myself. No wonder you're confused. We'll read it anyway. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider, this is the word for ponder, to think, to set your mind on. For consider, set your mind on him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. He's not talking about persecution. 
He's talking about our striving against sin, and that's the point that we want to lay out as we're looking at the first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 2. He's setting our context up, not persecution, but our fight against sin, and he's suggesting here that Jesus is worthy of the fight. He's also worthy of the release of about $3 million so I could build a new building so that we don't have to hear the kids screaming anymore. <laughs> I, get, I want you to just to be reminded, when you hear the kids screaming, Jesus said, suffer not the children from coming to me, right? So he actually likes that, but that also means they're being ministered to and we would never want to quench that, right? It just also means you're going to have to try extra hard not to be distracted, right? It's just basically why I yell at you. <laughs> Here's the thing. This verse is calling us to be consumed with Jesus. It's saying Jesus is the prize. Keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. I want to admonish you. You know, statistically, about 60% of the women in here are dealing with pornography this morning. 80% of the men are, statistically. Now, maybe in our born-again, spirit-filled church, those are lower. Jesus, help us. I pray it's lower. But let's just assume it's even half of that. Right? Intimacy with Jesus is the prize, and intimacy with Jesus is the problem. So what in the world do you do? When you're tempted to step into that sin, you worship. It says, fix my gaze upon him, fix my eyes upon him, the author, the finisher of my faith. What is it saying? Consume yourself with him. Move your posture. Your, your mind is consumed with, with something else. Your mind is consumed with lust. So step into the place where I say, No! See, he's already given you everything that you need to master this thing. It will not be master over you. His blood has already created like, this, this strength and grace in you to allow you to overcome the sin which is attempting to entangle you. He's saying, keep your eyes on Jesus. This is the time when you move into worship. What does worship do? It takes my mind off of that, and it puts my mind on him. And when I begin to worship, it also establishes a place of intimacy, which again is the issue. You don't know. But the reason you're entangled in that sin is because you've not made Jesus the prize. Because probably you're starving. You didn't know intimacy was what you were made for. And what you were actually longing for, you were just filling it with worldly things. <laughs> Jesus is the prize. So there's an extra tidbit. First service didn't get. You're welcome. <laughs> Verse 5. We're talking about striving against sin. Here's the deal. Christians... If we have sin in our lives, God will deal with us. You believe that? Yeah. He, he will deal with us. He will deal with the sin. But between now and the time when I go to sleep, in the end, at the end, you understand what I'm saying? The Bible says sleep. I figured I would use that. When I die, are we better now? Between now and the time that I die, the question is how? How does he deal with our sin? And that's what we begin to excavate in the next two verses. Look at this, verse 5 says, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, lest we get confused, I have the, the Greek for you on the board. Uh, for those of you who have downloaded our app, I actually uploaded the, the notes for you. you know, so on, in your panhandle, you actually have the Greek written in there, and you can save that 
pardon me, you can save that forever. I see Melvin's got his. You'll, what's on the board, uh, you already have actually in your hand. But look at this. This is the word for discipline in Hebrews chapter 5. Now listen, Hebrews chapter 12, I said 5, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12 is the premier set of verses on God's discipline. Father disciplines, this is how he disciplines. He disciplines out of love, or his kids. Okay, we have established that. This is the premier set of verses on this subject. But listen to how it's actually interpreted in the original language. Listen. It's, I should just look up. It's tutorage, this is the word for discipline, that is education or training by implication, disciplinary correction, chastening, chastisement, instruction, or nurture. You know that God actually has male and female attributes all together in one? Male and female, he created them in his image. Maybe for those of you who are so patriarchal that you dismiss women, you should get back to the original design. Just saying. God didn't diminish women. He made them in his design, in his image. And he made men in their image. One's not superior to the other. Now you know. (laughs) I like these rabbit trails. They're really good. Somebody's needing to hear this today. Oh, Lord Jesus, but now i got to get back on track. Where are we at here? (laughs) Oh, tutorage. Where was I? This is what discipline is. Thank you, Jesus, and also voices from the crowd. (laughs) Education or training by implication, disciplinary correction, chastening, chastisement, instruction, or nurture. Notice that it doesn't say punishment in that list anywhere. And then it goes on to actually reiterate what it means in the same verse by suggesting that God reproves, right? What's reproved? It's verbal correction. What I need you to see, do you remember when we talked about pruning? Thank you, three of you. This is why we need about 1,000 people in here, because then three turns into at least 10, and I feel better about participation. No, when we talked about pruning, it, he says, like, yeah, the Father God, he's going to come and prune. He's going to prune some tree, some branches in your life that look like they're bearing fruit. He's going to prune some dead stuff out of your life. But we talked about what, what method does he employ to prune you in your life? Is it negative circumstances, pain, and suffering? No, he says to his disciples, you who were here have already been pruned. The word rendered in NASB is clean, but it's the same word. You have already been pruned because of the word I have spoken over you. What I want you to see is when we step into the premier verses on the discipline of God in the New Testament, that it's absolutely consistent with what we've already covered. You've already been cleaned. You've already been pruned because of the word that I have spoken over you. Here he says, I love you so much. And if you're true sons and daughters, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring correction. How do you do that, Father? I speak a word. I release a better word over you. I come alongside as a coach and I speak into your life. I go, hey, remember this verse? Oh, I do remember that verse. He calls us with his voice to better. That's what it's saying. It's absolutely and utterly consistent. You know, if the author of Hebrews wanted to use the word punishment, how many of you know there actually is a Greek word for it? In fact, there's a couple of different Greek words. I find it striking that we find it in 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at that. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. (laughs) And the one who fears is not perfected in love. There's our word, punishment. You see, the next slide there is the Greek. Again, you've got these in your notes. Penal infliction, punishment, or torment. So in other words, if you've done the crime, you have to do the time. 
So there is actually a word for that. How many of you know in Hebrews chapter 12, it's not using that word. It's not using the word for the infliction of pain or torture upon you because you screwed up. It's using the word for discipline, which is to educate, to correct, to reprove, to come alongside with the voice of God, to partner with his father heart, to do better because you love him. That's the process of discipline. Are you seeing the contrast? The Passion Translation says one part of it like this. It says, but love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. The preceding verse is talking about for those of us who have given our hearts to Jesus Christ, we've taken our hands off the wheel and said, Jesus, drive it, drive my life, drive the car, the, you know, the, the vessel of my life. Like You have permission, take control. Those of us who have done that, it talks about how we don't have fear as it relates to eternal judgment. Well, why don't we have fear as it relates to eternal judgment? Anybody know? Because Jesus has already satisfied the justice of God against the sin in my life. Jesus has already satisfied the punishment of God against my sin. He satisfied it 2,000 years ago on the cross. Do you want to receive the fullness of that this morning? Right? It's because of this that we now have the ability to come boldly into his throne of grace. That's what the word says. Right? Yeah. Why, would I be, why would I come boldly into the throne of grace? Now, think about this. The Bible admonishes us and says, hey, don't be fearful of people. All people can do is they can kill you. That's no big deal. You need to fear God who can both kill your physical body and he can send you to an eternity to be punished in hell. That's the one that you ought to fear. Now listen, if God was a punisher, why would I come boldly into his throne room? You understand the throne room is the place where he's executing decisions against things like, I don't know, sin? Like if, if, if I'm supposed to fear the one who can destroy my body and destroy me in the pit of hell, why in the world would I ever cross the threshold? Why would I ever go into his throne room with boldness? Uh, instead, I'm going to be like, catch me if you can. I know you see everything, but I'm going to be running. Not coming boldly into his throne room, but what does it also say? Coming boldly into his throne room of grace. His throne room of grace. Hey, guys, listen. Welcome to the New Testament. Yeah. Welcome to the New Covenant as ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, sets us free. Where then do we get this idea that God is a punisher? It's a great question. I was wondering that myself. It's actually in the next verse here, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 6. This is literally the solitary verse, as far as I know, in the whole New Testament that people will always point to to create an entire doctrine around the fact that they believe that God is a punisher of his children. This is it. You ready? Your seatbelts are on? Thank you for answering. That was a great opportunity for people to respond and be, you know, come boldly into the throne of my grace. All right. Listen to this, verse 6. <laughs> for those who the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Oof. You know what scourging is? Yeah, go, go ahead and throw that picture on the board. This is a scourge. You'll, you'll note this is a Roman torture device. Uh, what it is, of course, you can see the, the whip is there with the leather, which by the... 
Justin needs to do some maintenance around here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Roman torture device. The, the, the leather itself would be enough, wouldn't it? Think about that. You ever accidentally whipped yourself when you were a kid because you got from Worlds of Fun the whip that they used to sell? They stopped doing that probably in my generation. They had real handcuffs too. All that's gone. You can't do that stuff anymore. That is all gone. You know, but not only would that be enough, you could, you'll note by, from the photo that it actually has shards of sharp metal and sometimes even bone placed into the straps of the scourge. Okay? Now listen, uh, what, what they would do is they, they, would, they would usually, the Bible says they would fall short of 40 lashes because they believed that, uh, that, that you would die. Like, so they would stop at 39. By the way, so many people didn't make it to 39 because they just died before that. You know, this was horrific. The whole intent of this particular uh, punishment you know, was to rip the flesh off of the criminal's back. And, and, and as, they would, as they would strike them time and time again, that's exactly what would happen. The flesh would actually open up, revealing the internals of the person's back, bones and all. Can you imagine? This is horrific torture. Now, here's a couple of things that you need to understand about the scourge. Number one, they refused to do it to Roman citizens. Well, that's, that's weird. Uh, why wouldn't they do it to their own citizens? Because it was too grotesque. They would only do it to their enemies. They wouldn't do it to their own citizens. Here's the second thing. In culture, fathers would never do this to their sons. Now, this strikes me, and I think it should strike you odd as well, that, that God in his Holy Spirit-breathed scripture would, would use a term like scourge you know, and say that this is what Father God is doing for his discipline of you. We've already defined discipline, so we know there's already a bit of a contradiction there. You know, the, he's actually hammering away and, and destroying you with this. This is what God does. But in the culture in which this verse was written, the good fathers of the day would never employ this against their sons. Let me remind you of some of the things that we've already talked about. We talked about that it's the mature who through practice have learned to discern the difference between good and evil. So God has actually wired me to be able to understand that which is good. It's not some elusive concept for us. At least it's not intended to be. So I know what is good. I know what a good father looks like. And I've submitted to you that if we see any kind of abusive practice in an earthly father, that you can rest assured that your heavenly father is not going to employ that practice against you. Right? Like God, in, in Matthew chapter 7, I think it is, Matthew chapter 7, he goes to great lengths to contrast his amazing fatherhood from our terrible fatherhood. In fact, he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, right? So he's actually trying to paint the picture. You're as far removed from me in your supposed goodness and fathering as you could possibly be. I, as Father God, I am immeasurably better than you could ask or think in my fathering. Now, let's get back to the scourging. Doesn't it strike you that God would breathe the scripture, use the word scourging, a, a, a practice, a Roman torture technique that they wouldn't even use against their, uh, their, own, their own people and their nation, and that fathers would never use against their children? Why in the world would God choose that term to describe his supposed, in quotes, discipline of his children? Well, that's a good question. That is a great question. How many of you know the book of Hebrews was actually written in Hebrews? <laughs> Funny fact. You didn't know that. Okay. The book, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews in their language. 
It's written to Jews in the Hebrew language. Okay, are we safe so far? So that means that the, that means that the Bible had already been translated before we got to it. It was written in the Hebrew and translated into Greek. The, the, the original, the, the Greek word that was used, let me see if I can find it somewhere on this magnificent artwork that is my notes. The Greek word that was used, mastigo, mastigo I may not say that right, but I'm not Paul Dury, so it's all good. That's the word that was rendered scourges. It's actually translated from the Hebrew word bikarit. I may not have that right either, but I'm suspecting you could care less. The word bikrit in Hebrew can mean scourges, but what it actually meant in the original, older definition was to inquire deeply into something. So fast forward from the time that the Hebrew word was released and written into Scripture in the Old Testament, fast forward all the way to the Roman days and the New Testament days when they're looking at what in the world are we going to call this Roman torture device? They named it a scourge, a, a bickerit, or the mistigu, however you say all those things. They named it that because it described what it does. Well, what is that? It, it, it means this. It inquires deeply into the skin of the back of the one who's being punished. That's the word there. Okay, so if, if we look at this, if we, if we swap this around a little bit, like, like what happens if we use the, the original definition of the word that was actually written in the original manuscripts? Like what happens if we do that? And we get something more like this out of uh, verse 6. Uh, for, those whom the Lord lo- uh, excuse me, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he deeply inquires into every son whom he receives. Well, that's a very different interpretation. Notice that the original, that he scourges the... Have I gotten to the... I think I skipped over some stuff. I did, but we're going to get back to it right now. (laughs) Notice that he scourges those... uh, Okay, all right. Help me, Lord. I'm going to go back because it's important. Did you know that Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 is actually a quote from Proverbs chapter 3? That's why it's in bold print. It's actually a quote. Let's read that together. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. It says, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, interestingly, the, the translators actually added the word corrects. So the word corrects isn't in the original uh, manuscripts either. And so if we correct it according to how it was actually written, it says this, uh, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son whom he delights in. Notice that he's using the word reprove, which is a verbal correction, and the reproof of the Lord is sandwiched around the, the, the nurture of God. Remember the interpretation that we have from the Greek word discipline actually included a mother's nurture? That's what you're seeing here. He's saying that even the reproof of God is shrouded by the love and the, and the diligence and the nurture of, the, of a great father. Now, why doesn't our passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 look anything like that which it's quoting? It's a direct quote from Scripture. Why don't they match? That's a great question. I don't know, Pastor. Please tell me. That's great because I had planned to tell you. (laughs) You Notice also that it doesn't express the same sentiment. The Father, He loves you and He reproves you. So here's this verbal correction sandwiched by love. And then we see the quote of it in Hebrews verse, chapter 12, verse 6. It says, oh, by the way, He beats you to oblivion one inch close to death and rips the spine out of your back. Can you see that they don't really line up at all? But 
when we replace that one word, scourge, with the original Hebrew word, which, by the way, again, was the original manuscript, all of a sudden, it does express the same sentiment. Can you see that? What am I saying? I'm saying it's a mistranslation. Heresy! Listen, you can go to our website, look at our what we believe statement. We believe that the word of God was inerrant in its original manuscripts. As it was breathed out of Holy Spirit's heart and into the hands of the apostles and scribes who wrote it. It was inerrant in its original manuscripts. It's been translated a couple of times since then. How many know that? And sometimes translators don't quite get it right. I would submit to you, and many other scholars would agree with me, this is one of those moments. Just so happens the Aramaic translation agrees with us. Look at this. The Aramaic translation translates the word scourge to mean to draw you to himself or to tug at your heart. Do you think the Aramaic translation just wildly missed it? Or do you think maybe the... The other guys down the road missed it. I'm going to go with the other guys down the road. Anybody agree with me? Good. I just felt like I needed an amen right then. Do you remember what we talked about? Like, what's the result of punishment? What does it do? It inflicts pain because of a crime committed and deals exclusively with behavior. Well, what does discipline do? Discipline trains one up in the way that they should go. It doesn't inflict pain on the person to correct behavior. It actually goes to deal with the issues of the heart. When we swap out that one word, scourge, for the word Hebrew word, bickerit, what do we actually get? What does it mean that he inquires deeply into us through his discipline? It means that he's getting to the heart of the issue. Okay, we've just come full circle. He inquires deeply, what, is a, what does a good father do? What does discipline look like? He's coming alongside. He's speaking a better word over you. Oh, son, daughter. Boy, I, I, have, I have called you to step into amazing things together with me. Missed the mark a little bit on this one. How are we going to work together to get different fruit, right? Like he's talking to you. He's saying, hey, remember this verse? Do you recall the, yes, Father, I remember that verse. He says things like, hey, why, why did you think that you would get better results handling that relationship issue your way than, than what you know and what you've read in my word? Oh, I don't know, God, I'm just prideful. Or, oh, okay, so we found the root. The root's pride. Uh, would you like to repent of that today? Yes, God, I want to repent of that pride. What's happening? He's disciplining me with his word. What's he doing? As I'm relating to God, he's getting to the heart of the matter. He's inquiring deeply within. He's looking for the root of the problem. Really, he's actually excavating it so that I can see the root of the problem. He already knew, which is why he's so good at getting us there. Do you understand? I want to close with this. One of my favorite, I was going to say verses, but section of verses is out of Isaiah 53. It's talking about the atonement of Christ. I think it's so fitting that, we, that today, on the day that we roll out Isaiah 53, we actually have communion where we're remembering his sacrifice on the cross. 
for remembering his broken body and his spilled blood, which was broken for me. It was broken for you. It was broken for your healing, for your sanctification. We're remembering and forgetting not the God who forgives all of our iniquities, who heals all of our diseases, right? How is it that I can run boldly into the throne of grace without fear of punishment? It says, perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Remember our verse out of 1 John. How is it that I can roll into his throne room without fear? Because Jesus in his perfect love has already cast out fear because he himself took my punishment. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed, and I have personally amplified. So this is the Sean version slash NASB. He was crushed, which means to bruise, literally or figuratively, to beat to pieces, to break into pieces, to crush, destroy, humble, oppress, or smite for our iniquities. That's our sin. Talking about Jesus here. The chastening, the the rebuke, the warning, the instruction, the chastisement, correction, discipline, instruction, the rebuke. And how many of you know that chastening can be done well by a father and it can be done really poor? That can be chastened by a father uh, and it looks something like this. You idiot. Or maybe it would look something like this. If he's the savior, let him pull himself down from that cross then. If he healed others, why can't he heal himself? See, chastisement isn't inherently good or bad. How you use it is good or bad. I would, I would speculate in this instance as it relates to how Jesus was treated. It was used negatively. He was chastened for, it says, our well-being, our shalom. It fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Hmm. Here's the truth, guys. Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty that he satisfied the justice of God and the wrath of God against sin in your lives. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that we deserved for our sins to free us up so that we didn't have to undergo that anymore. Listen, he literally was scourged for you so that you don't have to be. It, it, I feel like somebody just said it's crazy, and you're right. It's scandalous. Jesus took your punishment. Jesus took your beating. Jesus had his beard ripped out. Jesus had the, the crown of thorns bound into his head. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was strung up and he was beaten the 39 times. He was scourged for you. He was, his, he was put up on the cross, drawn up on the cross, which itself would meant eminent death. As he's bleeding out and can't breathe, he did it for you so that you didn't get what you deserve. You've got to hear that. We're talking about, like, is God a punisher or is he a disciplinarian? Listen, Jesus took your punishment. He satisfied fully the justice of God against your and my sin forever. Sin that you've done, sin that perhaps you're doing and knock it off if you are, and sin perhaps that you'll step in in the future. He's already satisfied it all. He's already forgiven it all. What would the Father God be punishing you for? 
Listen, it says that Jesus had the ministry of reconciliation. Like his whole aim, it says, was not to judge the earth, but was actually to draw people into relationship with Father God. What does that mean? It's meaning he was extending an opportunity for intimacy, that he died on the cross to bring you into intimacy. But what does punishment do? causes me to withdraw. Jesus isn't going to give his life and be punished for you. For the Father then to release punishment over you and to nullify the work of the cross. Jesus has already satisfied your punishment if you've accepted. He's done it for the whole world. You just have to receive it. He's satisfied your punishment. Father God doesn't scourge his children because he scourged Jesus already. Man, you got to get that because this is the go-to chapter for everybody who wants to paint God as the big ogre in the sky who inflicts pain on his people through circumstances, through whatever, whatever, whatever. God is not putting pain and suffering on you. James chapter 1, read it, makes it as clear as it could be. He says, don't you say, don't say that God is the one sending these horrific things to your life. It's not God who's doing that. And it goes on to say, because God is good. I like how Bill Johnson says it. God is good. The devil is bad. That's a really good Sunday school lesson. And we would do good to get it in a deep place, especially as we're challenged by the circumstances of life. We're challenged by people. We're, you know, and listen, especially as it relates to church discipline. Just saying. Just a thought. You guys ever seen the meme? I want to end with this. Wow, 12, 4. Oh, okay, yeah, we did a little extra. I forgot. I told myself that in the beginning. I was trying to prepare my heart for going long, and I already forgot. Forgive me. We'll end with this. You can see that meme on the board. I feel like this just encapsulates it so well. Anybody ever seen this? No, you guys don't waste time on social media. That's not, that can't be. It says religion is this. I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. Everybody, anybody ever felt like that? Man, I messed up so bad. Dad is going to kill me. What is that? That's punishment. And if I think dad's going to kill me, then I may be more inclined to try to cover it up. You ever had something that happened in your house and you're like, well, that's funny. Nobody seems to know anything about it. I know that I didn't do it. I know that mom didn't do it. That leaves the three of you. Somebody better fess up. What, you know, what, who broke my I, got, I had a speaker get broken the other day. You know, not one soul in my whole house knows what happened. It's the strangest thing I've ever seen. Now, to be fair, we had some other kids over, and we think that they're to blame, little heathens. <laughs> but you ever experienced that? If you have a punishment paradigm, if the gospel, if, if the New Testament is a punishment paradigm, it's going to create number one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And, and listen, what do you do to fix that? What are you going to do to fix it? Oh, man, I screwed up so bad. My father's going to kill me. Well, when's he not going to kill you if that's your belief? When, is it, when are you going to get it straightened out? When's it going to get fixed? Because if you did the crime, you've got to do the time in a punishment paradigm. So when are you going to face up? Well, probably you're not. It's probably just going to breed disconnection, and you're going to run from intimacy with the Father, and it's going to, it's going to blow things up. But number two is what we're talking about. What does the gospel say? Oh, I messed up so bad, I've got to call my dad. Why? Because my dad's not going to punish me. He's going to come alongside of me, help me clean up my mess. 
And because of his overwhelming love for me in his reproof, I'm not going to do that again. The circumstances surrounding my screw-up were punishment enough. And now I'm going to heed the word of God. And I'm going to learn this lesson. And I'm going to walk in a different way. That's called repentance, by the way. We change the way we think, and it manifests in different behavior. Right? This is right there. That's it. There's the New Testament. Welcome to the new covenant, the covenant that Jesus called grace. Grace to you. Grace to those who offend you. Right? Grace, grace, grace. Don't just have grace for yourself. Have grace for your offenders. Even the stupid ones. Those are the hardest ones. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Father, we ask that you would reprogram us. Man, some of us, we, we've had bad examples. We just feel like you're a big ogre with a big stick just ready to beat the oblivion out of us. You're ready to scourge us, rip open our backs. And here's the worst part. Some of us think we deserve it. Here's the thing. You do deserve it, but Jesus already took what you deserve. Let that sink deep. Jesus, write that on our hearts. Let that sink deep. I don't get what I deserve because you took it. You don't release punishment over me because you've already released punishment. Rewrite the way we think. Rewrite our history. We're asking that you would change the way that we see you, God. You're so good. Your reproof is sandwiched. It's surrounded by your nurturing mother-like love. You're so good and patient and kind and gentle. So gentle with us. Our fragile hearts and our misconceptions and our mess-ups and our sin. You're so gentle with us, God. Rewrite the way that we think about you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you would like to contact us or would like more information about our church or additional podcasts or resources, please visit us online at harvestwarrensburg.com. We hope to see you soon.